0: Mike was relatively quiet. Uh, he was basically listening to what, to what everyone was saying and everyone seemed to be happy to be there. Uh, even, before they had, even before they'd hit a shot, they were delighted to be there. Maybe it was the, the, just the, the atmosphere of a, an opening day in a golf course, but when they came back in, my goodness, the comments in the clubhouse and the atmosphere in the clubhouse was just out of this world. You could almost, even today, I could, you can feel it here on the back of your neck, standing up, because you knew that something had happened to you in in a place which was out in the middle of nowhere. It was an incredible day.
1: Put another log on the fire. Nobody here
2: is getting tired. Welcome to the fire pit with Matt Janella. Welcome back. Settle in. This story is one that means a little more to me than most. After all, on May 12, 2017, we named our son Bandon, which, according to some research by my wife, means cooperative, courteous. And she says people named Bandon tend to be considerate. Apparently, peace and harmony are of the utmost importance to someone named Bandon. If you've been to the resort or have met my son you'd say most of the above is true as far as our son goes it's a work in progress in terms of the destination I've been covering the development of Bandon Dunes since 2001 and I've been going there every year for my annual buddy's trip the Uncle Tony invitational since 2007 the fire pit at Bandon Dunes in the middle of the Grove cottages the nights I've had there the stories I've told and heard there That was the inspiration for this podcast. Today you'll hear part one of the building of Bandon Dunes, as told by Mike Kaiser, the owner, David McClay Kidd and his father, Jimmy, the architects, and Josh Lesnick and his father, Steve, who won the bid to manage it. I interviewed Mike Kaiser on his own, David and Josh together, and Steve Lesnick and Jimmy Kidd together. Bandon Dunes, the original course at what is now the best pure golf destination in America, and arguably the world, was an outlier that opened in 1999. Like Sand Hills in Mullen, Nebraska, the story we told in the previous episode of this podcast, to build a golf course in a remote location using a minimalist architect or architects was anything but what was being built in America in the 90s. Mike Kaiser, of recycled paper greetings in Chicago, started developing courses with the Dunes Club, a private but non-pretentious nine-hole course built in the sand of New Buffalo, Michigan. Kaiser was then brought in to invest a little money into what Young's Cap was building in Nebraska.
3: My model has always been, even though Dornick and St. Andrews Old are important, uh, Pine Valley has always been my model because it's in the U.S. It's uh, it's not remote, but it's uh, sort of a hole in the wall place, and it's totally natural, built on sand dunes. It doesn't have an ocean, but magnificent sand dunes. So that was my that was my motivator and model for the Dunes Club. And when I saw Sand Hills, that was in the same genre as Pine Valley. And before we knew it, Dick was full. That gave me a lot of courage out out there in Bandit because that was the missing ingredient: the courage to build something
2: in Bandon Oregon. Kaiser says that when Sand Hills got 150 members in Mullen, that's the mitosis of modern minimalism in America. As Bill Kors said, a watershed moment. But what if it didn't work? Why was this worth the risk for Mike Kaiser?
3: Yeah, you know, Josh and I discussed, you know, what happens if no one comes, or what happens if we break even, because we all had bets the first year how many rounds we would do. And 12,000 rounds is break even. And most of our bets about how many rounds we would do were less than 12,000 rounds. So in my group, no one thought we would break even. And the discussion I remembered probably then the night before, well, if it doesn't work, I'll give it three years for it to catch on. And if it doesn't, we'll uh, turn it into a sheep ranch.
2: Which is a bit ironic considering this podcast is going live on the eve of the opening of the sheep ranch the sixth course at Bandon Dunes, another Bill Kaur and Ben Crenshaw design. Their story is told in Episode 6 of The Fire Pit. But we start this story in January of 1991. Mike Kaiser's first trip to Bandon, Oregon, 500 miles north of San Francisco, almost 300 miles south of Portland. Kaiser is standing on what's now the 14th tee of Bandon Trails, looking out over gorse-choked dunesland out to the Pacific Ocean.
3: I went to the lookout site, which you've seen uh, with Shorty and Charlotte Dow, the caretakers of 35 years of the property, who knew the property better than anyone. And we said, if you're looking for a golf course, Shorty said, I'll take you to the spot. And the spot is uh, marked today as the spot that Shorty Dow took Mike geyser. And I looked out and said, this is it. There can't be another site. It was just, uh, I later toured the the land, which was 1,200 acres. But just from that lookout outside, it had everything. It had beautiful sand dunes. It had the ocean. You just knew it was as good as Dornick or in the same breath as Dornick and Valley Bunyan without knowing the specifics. So that one tour with Shorty and Charlotte was uh, all I needed to see. So then all I had to do was buy it from uh, Duke Watson in Seattle, Washington, and get David Kidd and his father on board to do a routing.
2: Before we get to the kids, I circled back on the cost.
3: They were asking five. Uh, it had been on the market for four and a half years, according to Shorty Dow and a broker. Uh, so I felt that there, were, there weren't any buyers, that I was probably the only buyer. And therefore, and decided that it would be much more effective if I was seeking a 50% discount. I went there in person, so I flew out to see Duke Watson, the owner, along with his two brothers-in-law, and said, "Duke, I don't have enough money to do this project, so I can only pay you half of what you're asking. If you're asking five, I'll give you two and a half." And he said, "Let us let us go caucus." So they went into the, these three, and they were in their eighties. They're three old guys. Go into another room, I came back in fifteen minutes, and they said, "We'll take it." They became big fans. That Duke in particular came down in numerous times and said, you know, it was always our dream to build a, a resort, and you've gone and done it.
2: Now that he has the land and we know Kaiser's inspirations, he was looking for some authenticity in terms of the course itself, which is about the time Kaiser had a conversation with Rick Summers, who worked for Glen Eagles Golf Developments in Scotland and worked with David McClay Kidd, who was in his mid-20s.
4: And in that conversation, Rick said, why don't you hire a Scottish architect if you're trying to build a Scottish Lynx course? And Mike said, I would, but there aren't any. They all died 100 years ago.
2: And then Ian Farrier, also of Glen Eagles Golf Developments, made a trip to the States to try and drum up some business.
3: And Ian came to see me and said, if you're looking for someone to do a Lynx golf course, which is how I define it, there's only one group for you. And that's the Kidd family, David Kidd and his father, Jimmy. Know what they're doing. Come on over to Glen Eagles
2: and we'll show you. Enter Jimmy Kidd, David's father and the director of agronomy at Glen Eagles in Scotland.
0: We will bring Mike to Scotland. We will base him at Glen Eagles Hotel. We will visit Irish links. We will visit Scottish links. We will convince Mike that we know everything about Lynx golf, how it should play, how it should look, what kind of vegetation and such like. And we got to, uh, we got down to North Berwick. It was the very last one that we played. And uh, we played the second hole. Mike pushed one onto the beach and he said, Well, that's it, I'll drop another ball. I said, No, you won't, Mike. Go down there and play it. Yeah, he said, You can't play it. I said, Get down on the beach and play it back. He knocked it back to nine feet and hold the puck
3: for a three. And at that point, I knew we had the project. I was totally captivated by Jimmy Kidd, who's my age in particular, who convinced me that he knew everything you could possibly know about golf in Scotland, and especially Link's golf.
2: Jimmy Kidd was a bit of a legend. His son, David, was still leaning on his DNA.
4: You know, my father was in a group uh, along with Walter Woods at St. Andrews, George Brown at Turnberry, and a myriad of others that he came up through the ranks with. And my childhood was spent at these golf courses with these superintendents and golf pros a completely immersed in Scottish golf.
2: Meanwhile, back in Chicago, Josh Lesnick was trending to work in his father's business.
5: You know, I grew up in the golf business as well. I mean, he grew up with superintendents and I grew up more on the service side, um, working at at Kemper Lakes, which was, you know, one of the first upscale daily fee golf courses opened in the In around 1979, 1980, I think all 18 holes opened. And I worked there in summers of high school and college because services is a way that my dad, the founder of Kemper Sports, always felt that we could differentiate ourselves.
2: Stars haven't aligned yet, but we're getting there. The kids receiving an invite to Kaiser's land in Bandon, that's a big step.
4: And my father and I flew out in July of 1994 to abandon dunes and we spent a week on the site with Shorty Dow, uh, who just passed you know a year ago or so, uh, who was the caretaker of the sixteen hundred acres, if I remember right, that Mike had purchased, and my father and I spent a week going around the land. My dad and I were super excited at what the possibilities were. We thought the piece of land that Mike had had huge potential, and we thought maybe somehow. Uh, We were sneaking under the wire into America for a developer that uh, some way, somehow, was going to hire these complete unknowns to build a golf course. But what happened was, during that week, Shorty kept asking uh, my dad and I for our business cards. I mean, he kept asking and asking and asking. And so it became obvious that he was collecting business cards. So I said, sure, I'll give you a business card, but I want to see your collection. And when I saw the collection, he had my heart sank because the collection had all of my heroes in it. I mean, Mike had had everybody out there. You know, we weren't sneaking under any wire. I mean, this guy is, it was obvious he was pretty sophisticated and he was able to to get Jack Nicholas, Tom Fazio, Pete Dye, Whoever he wanted on the phone and could have hired any of them so it was pretty obvious to my dad and i that we were in a competition and we were way the hell out of our league especially me i'm 26 years old and i haven't done jack sh- you know
2: pausing david's narrative for a second going back to josh where the lesnicks were also vying for the contract to work with kaiser
5: there was a bit of a of a competition as to who was going to manage Bandon Dunes. The company David worked for at the time that he mentioned, Glen Eagles Golf, also had a management arm or said they had a management arm. Not sure what all they were managing, but there was a bit of a, uh, of a bake-off between Kemper Sports and Glen Eagles Golf. It happened that our, our sister company, Kemper Lesnik, the public relations agency, has an office downtown. We met Mike there. Uh, Glenn Eagles was there. David wasn't in that meeting. I was there just watching my dad do his thing, which is he's he's a phenomenal salesperson. And, and uh, thankfully Mike selected Kemper Sports to manage it. And he called me the next week after that meeting and said, I'd like you to think about moving out there.
2: Steve Lesnick founded Kemper Sports in 1978 with a focus on golf course development and various aspects of management. Steve reflects on Kaiser picking his son as the first general manager of Bandon Dunes.
1: It was another great insight um, of Mike. We all know he has so many, uh, because he recognized that uh, Josh had a uh, passion for the game that uh, equaled his own. And Matt, as you well know, his uh, extraordinary people skills uh, really uh, contributed to the development of um, abandoned dunes.
2: Meanwhile, the kids, specifically David, was back in Bandon, and he wasn't having an easy time coming to terms with their odds to get the job of building the golf course.
4: I took a little bit of offense to the whole thing. I figured that my dad and I, as these, you know, colloquial Scots out there on this piece of land with this mega rich guy from Chicago going to fly in in his private jet, you know, we were just entertainment. I mean, there's no way this guy's going to hire us. So I take it upon myself to be blunt. I mean, just kind of brutally blunt with him because I figure he's not going to hire us anyway. So what the hell? So I, I paint out this scenario that if you really want to build a real Lynx course in America, in this place that's miles from anywhere then you need to be authentic. But I know you won't do it. I mean, I've seen what Lynx Golf is in America. Lynx Golf in America is Pebble beach with everyone driving golf carts and playing into poor greens with perfectly trimmed bunker edges. You know, I, I pick up any American golf magazine and every new course is called a Lynx course. And they're not Lynx at all. They're not even close to a Lynx course.
3: He's very entrepreneurial. He could say brash. I would say entrepreneurial and confident
2: call it what you want, but David brought all of it to a pitch meeting at the Seastar Guest House in downtown Bandon.
4: And I gave what would be today a PowerPoint presentation, but I did it with poster boards and a Sharpie uh, pens. And I wrote down on these poster boards, you know, like no cart paths uh, and make, you know, they would walk and that the fairways would be uneven and uh, there'd be pot bunkers and the clubhouse shouldn't be on the water's edge. It should You know, the best green should be on the water's edge.
0: I said to David, if we deviate at any any time uh, from offering Mike anything more than a true, and I mean a true, uh, Lynx experience, Irish Lynx experience here, he will not hire us as
4: architects. He will go elsewhere. I mean, it was completely the antithesis of American golf development circa the 1990s. It was everything that golf was not. Uh, and lo and behold, it pretty much was exactly what the audience was there to hear. That was I was pushing at an open door with Mike. That was actually what his intentions were.
3: I think it was a meeting of uh, eight or so of us who'd flown out with me from Chicago, eight friends and avid golfers and golf aficionados who were there basically to say, you've got to be nuts to do this. And I think David Kidd gave his presentation. Uh, to convince them, to convince me that it wasn't such a crazy idea. He keyed on, you know, how do we get hired? I keyed on, do I really want to do this?
2: In theory, the kids had the job, and that was because of their commitment to building true links. And Kemper Sports had the job to manage it. But why does Josh Lesnick, at the age of 29, think he was Kaiser's chosen one?
5: I think, in the end, maybe... The way Mike feels, if Kemper Sports was gonna manage it and the owner was willing, the owner of Kemper Sports was willing to send his son out there, that they weren't gonna let me fail. They were gonna give me all the support I needed to be successful opening um, that resort. And that's what our company's all about, is supporting the general managers to be successful. And I had a ton of support, whether it be accounting, legal, operations, policies, procedures. All the things that maybe weren't my strengths, mine probably were more in in building the relationships and communications and building the brand of Bandit Dunes. But you know, I think he was just like, well, the company's not going to let Josh fail. Let's send, let's send him out there.
2: Steve Lesnick agrees.
5: Uh, by having my son go out, uh, this was going to
1: have um, my full attention and the full attention of the organization because we certainly were not going to let. Uh, Josh fail or not be successful or not uh, hit the ball out of the park. I know we've all watched um, the last dance these last couple of uh, uh, weeks, and um, it is true that in a way organizations win championships, but you know what? The players play, and Josh played, and those first three years were crucial to all of us, to the success of all of us, the reputation of all of us, and he did a great job, and I'm very, very proud of him.
2: Like I said a few minutes ago, in theory, the kids had the job to build the course. Josh, the GM, and David, the kid, explain.
5: I'm not sure Mike ever gave him the job. Every time he came out there, he was like, let's see what he can do. And he just kept living up to the the task. Every, every time he had an idea about a hole and the route and this and that, Mike liked it more and more and gave him more and more of a, I mean, Dave, is that how you kind of remember it?
4: Yeah, I, uh, I wrote Mike a proposal that basically <clears throat> sold him my time on a day basis, a, a day rate. Uh, and Mike sent me back a fax that was on recycled paper and headed notepaper.
3: And it said, OK, let's go. And that's all it said. Classic Mike Kaiser. David had never done a golf course. He just had this lineage that I thought, as long as his father... Yeah. Uh, Jimmy was involved, it would work out okay. And so it was. Jimmy was a great help to David. They came over and and bushwhacked through the gorse plants and came up with uh, this routing that was pretty good. Not good enough to build, but pretty good. And they were the architects.
2: We heard why Josh thought he got hired. So why does David think he got to build Bandit?
4: I think Mike hired me for what I didn't know. You know, I, I didn't know how to screw it up because I'd never built much else. Uh, what I had was this extremely raw, uh, in uh, instinct for what golf is in the British Isles, and so uh, it wasn't uncommon to me. I, I had I barely played many golf courses, driving a golf cart on a concrete path, much less built one. So I didn't know how to do that. I hadn't built a bunch of lakes with fountains on a golf course, much less played one.
2: As for kids' compensation, he was getting a daily fee.
4: It was about a couple of hundred bucks, I think. Something in there. Uh, but I was working for a company. So my, I lived on site at Band through the whole entire build. So pretty much, it was like eight or nine months I was on site. And that year I made 40000 that year. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you think Mike Kaiser got a steal?
4: It's the best deal I ever did.
2: Mike Kaiser on the team he had assembled. David had never designed a golf
3: course, and Josh had never managed a golf course or anything. So I had Dude, talk about rookies, real rookie. Uh, but David had his dad, Jimmy, to sort of hover a little bit and guide him, and David then did, did fine on his own. And Josh's dad, dad Steve Lesnick, was president and owner of uh, Kemper Sports. I figured that the dad there, Steve Lesnick, would not let his son fail. And in fact, Josh did great on his own. But that remained in my mind a a big thing, that uh, Kemper Sports was not going to let this be anything other than a great success. And they worked hard at it.
2: Josh and David, both in their 20s, would meet on what would be the 12th hole at Bandon Dunes, about 200 yards from the coastline.
5: I remember my first visit flying out with Mike. Uh, and we basically went went straight to what is now the 12th T to meet you. And Mike, you know, said, Well, this looks like a part three. What are we gonna do here? You said, Well, we're standing on this dune. This is gonna be the T. That part that looks like a green right there, that's gonna be a green. And Mike, well, what are you what are you gonna do in between? You said. Not much, maybe just like one really deep bunker, and you know that's the twelfth hole today as it stands there.
3: And I said, well, I'm in the greeting card guy, greeting card business guys, and I know the power of a visual, and this is a great uh, photograph. And Josh, take a photo of this right now before we build it, because after we build it, it's going to be a fabulous photograph. And we're going to take that photo, and we're going to make greeting cards and send them to everyone we know in the golf business. And there was our initial press release, uh, not hard-on copy. It was just a photo of number 12. And the copy was, for additional information, called Josh Leslie.
2: While Josh was busy getting the word out, David was busy in the dunes.
3: The, the sequence we worked through
4: was we started on the holes that were on the ocean. So 12, 15, and 16 were the first ones that got built. And th- those are iconic golf holes. Uh, so... Uh, I think that Josh and I both uh, were—we lacked hesitation. We we were both sort of point and shoot at that point in our lives. Uh, we, we did not have uh, any doubts in what we were doing. We 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 didn't. I guess we were too dumb to know the risks that we were involved in or the, the how it could all go wrong. We were. It was straight point and shoot. I mean, we were like, okay, I'm going in this direction. Lead, follow, or get the out my way. I mean, I'm going this way. Uh, And we both had our own little teams that they were happy to follow. I mean, if if we were both godfathers in the Mafia, we had the, the group around us that would have died for us
3: at that point.
2: Mike Kaiser stayed close to the process.
3: Early on, it was David and Jimmy. And then later, Jimmy withdrew once we had a routing. And it was pretty much all David and his brash approach. And you know, I approved everything and liked what I saw hole by hole by hole.
2: Josh remembers the thirteenth hole as being something he had never seen before.
5: You had, you know, an American shaper, and no one could believe that you wanted to leave that fairway with all the the dunes in it. And you know, having David there was—I mean—it was so inspirational for the whole project. But that fair, every time I walk down that fairway, I think about those discussions and how you. And Jimmy, uh, your dad, were wanted to leave the dunes there. No, Amer- it's unlike any other American ferries. You're saying that may be common in Scotland, but wasn't very common here. And that's just one of the so many ways you had effect on that on that property and that project. Really, a neat memory.
2: I asked David of the original routing that got them the job. What, if anything, changed during the build?
4: Well, the first routing, I. The back nine never really changed. Uh, holes 10 through 18 uh, were on the very first layouts and they pretty well got built. The front nine got completely changed. Uh, the original parcel that Mike had bought, uh, the northern boundary was basically the existing third hole. The The third hole was on the plan, but everything north of that did not exist. Mike didn't own that
3: land. I hope he told you about David Schumann. And the land next door, he might not have said this, but David and his father's original layout on the twelve hundred acres uh, was about three holes short of being really good. And I told David that, and he was sort of crestfallen. Said, "I've used up all the land. What do you want me to do?" And I said, "I don't know. You're the golf course. You're the golf course architect. You think of it." Virtually at that moment, it was you know it was weeks and weeks later. Our neighbor to the north um, declared bankruptcy. It enabled me to buy it and to give to David what became number five, six, seven, and eight. The really good holes, those in particular, were gifts from the golf gods. who would have thought that within months of having this log jam uh, with David Kidd, that the land would present itself.
2: We know Bandon Dunes now as pristine minimalism with picturesque imperfections, natural nuances, and such a soulful approach to the game as it was meant to be. But back then, I wondered if there was much of a social life in and around this budding destination.
5: It's a small resort town. It wasn't even a resort town at that time. It was becoming a resort town. And when you live in a small resort town and you're David Kidd or you're Josh, you're kind of always on. I mean, you're always that's you're representing Band of Dunes. You're representing Mike Kaiser. So work never ends. Uh, fortunately, as it grew, you know, David was surrounded by the people that worked for him. I was surrounded by the people that worked for us. And um, you know, maybe there's one local bar in town where you could go. Uh, Lloyd's abandoned. Lloyd's abandoned, which I heard reopened. <laughs> I, I haven't been back there, oh but my goodness. <laughs> I heard it reopened. Everyone had been going to the arcade, which is owned by a, a family that works at the resort and a couple of caddies, uh, bought it. And it's a, it's a great place, the arcade tavern, but back then it was Lloyd's and, uh, you know, I had a house and would open my house to anybody. And, um, you know, so it was just, Small resort town, and you you kind of live and work and play with those that you work with.
4: Wait, there was there was a lot of drinking went on back then. There was a lot uh, when when I was building the golf course uh, in the heat of battle in late '97 and then through '98. Uh, there was nothing there. There was there wasn't even a road up onto the golf course. So we were hiking through sand to get out onto the golf course every day. And then sometimes I would drive up to Empire while the guys were working and I'd buy uh, a bushel of oysters uh, or some tuna and I'd bring it back to the site and I'd build a fire below the 16th green. We did this many times and I would barbecue the oysters, cut up the, the tuna, put cold beers down there. And then after work, people would drive down. Uh, what where the sheep ranch is now break out onto the beach and their pickup trucks come around and park underneath what is now 16 green and we would party there till it got dark or very dark and we'd be hitting golf balls down the beach
5: and drinking beers and eating oysters uh and there, that went on quite a bit yeah and then i would i would get a call the next day from mike kaiser about what was what happened the night before because as David mentioned earlier, there was a caretaker who was also the sheriff of the property, Shorty Dow, um, and his wife Charlotte. Um, but Shorty would monitor everything that was going on. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get him to call me with the information. He would call Mike and say, Oh yeah, the you know, the Scottish guys are and David would have his interns and um You know, there were a lot of fun things that happened down there on the beach. I'm sure I wasn't I wasn't always invited in those parties or didn't know about them. Josh, you needed plausible deniability. (laughs) And, uh, sure, you know, then I'd get a call the next day from Mike about something that might have happened on the beach. And I was supposed to be responsible for this place. But uh, I think it was was more fun and nothing too bad happened. And a lot of a lot of good came out of it. So
2: some not so good
5: you guys at one of your oyster clam bakes or whatever you guys were doing on the beach, Simon drove the old blue into the ocean and was surfing on the hood of of this pickup truck. And, and the pickup truck went out to sea and Simon jumped in the water and was, was okay. He came to the beach and Shorty had watched this whole thing happen. And I got a call the next day from Mike Kaiser saying, um, where is my pickup truck? Yeah, that wasn't such a good one. That was, <laughs> that was a tough one. I got the call the next day. Like, you know, and Mike was probably messing with me like, Josh, you're supposed to be in charge. You know, what's good? Look what happened on your watch. Fuck.
3: One, one of the mornings, he and Charlotte were driving on the beach, which they always did. And Charlotte looked out the window, looking towards the ocean, towards the Orient, and said, Isn't, Shorty, isn't that Troy's truck? And Troy was our superintendent and had a truck. Isn't that Troy's truck out there in the ocean? And Shorty said, well, well, by golly, that's a truck. That's Troy's truck out in the ocean. So rather than get angry about destroying perfectly good property, uh, which I could have gone in that direction, I decided to uh, lecture David as follows. David, one of your people, or if you, for all I know, I don't want to know whose idea it was, but to remunerate me for the lost truck. And that's how we left it. We left it as a very funny story. I didn't lose money, and uh, we'll never know the, the specific details of just who cooked up the, hey, let's drive Troy's truck into the ocean, let it
2: float away. Mike's right. We'll never know. Until now,
4: the fuller story was that Simon, the intern, was uh, the local high school math teacher down on the beach in that pickup truck. And he got it stuck in the sand. Uh, And then the tide came in and all sorts of shit then ensued. Uh, So uh, those were, yeah,
3: there was was hard charging times back then. Was there any adult supervision? (laughs) On the golf course, there was. Um, And the golf course, I approved every green, every, you know, the routing. So there was oversight there. And David and I got to know each other and know what we uh, liked together. And that worked fairly well.
2: Which brings us to Mike's site visits.
4: That was probably the hardest part of the whole project was Mike would fly in pretty regularly. So probably at least every third week uh, for the seven or eight months we were in construction. And he would fly in with a bunch of what he called retail golfers, which I'm sure Josh had to deal with too. So Mike would fly in with, you know, three, four, six of his golfing buddies, uh, who were doctors or lawyers or, you know, who knows. That this was not their business. They were just, you know, keen amateur golfers with an opinion, and. Mike would wander around the golf course uh, with me. I mean, not wander. It was very focused. And he would want me to explain what I was doing, what I was planning to do. He would question me about why things were the way they were. And his buddies would, would have a free-for-all doing the same thing and telling Mike what they thought. So they'd be like, no, I don't think that bunker should be there. I think it would be better over there. Or Why don't you move that hole over here? Or And Mike, as Josh knows, would listen to all of this. And it was absolutely infuriating Uh, because I'd be working my butt off with my guys to try and build something really cool. And these guys that didn't know Jack would turn up with all of these thoughts and they'd be in my head infecting mike with all of their myriad of ideas and i'd be trying to herd cats uh, and it was really really tough it got to the point one day where one of mike's buddies was suggesting some idea that that just couldn't work wouldn't work and mike was nodding his head in agreement and i was just seething inside i mean just wanting to just scream and at some point with a few minutes later or an hour later i went to mike and i I said hey you know that guy made this suggestion and you agreed i'm going to bring the bulldozer back and and do what what it is i totally disagree with you but if that's what you want then that's what i'll do and mike got pretty stern with me and he said hey you need to understand When I'm agreeing with one of my friends, it means I hear them. It doesn't mean I'm saying yes, unless I
5: tell you to change something.
2: More on Mike's visits from Josh's perspective.
5: You didn't want to be a naysayer with Mike and his friends, but his visits um, to the property, as David said, extremely focused. I mean, I don't know anybody that takes their time more seriously than, than Mike Kaiser from the minute he steps on property, he's laser focused on whatever, you know, again, I, I mean, I talked to him on the phone for 20 years as we were building the whole place and all the golf, I talked him on the phone every day. And, and, um, he's equally as, as precious with his time on the phone, but on property, whatever it is, if we're, uh, do we need to build more rooms? Where are we going to build them? What are we going to do? What's the room? You know, and every minute on property is scheduled out as to what he's going to do. And uh, and then, you know, at the end of the day, dinner and let's talk about dinner and how the food and beverage works and what what's the best. And, you know, by the end of his, there were typically two night trips. So he'd come in on a Tuesday morning. He'd stay Tuesday, Wednesday night and he'd leave Thursday afternoon. You know, by Thursday night, I was exhausted. I can tell you that. And everybody around me was exhausted. Because his mind is incredible, and you have to be on all the time. And you're getting a lot done when he's around. And it's been that way since my very first trip in 1997.
2: You can't talk about the development of abandoned Dunes without a deeper dive on Howard McKee, who died of colon cancer in 2007.
3: Uh, he was a very good friend of mine from Chicago. He had moved to Chicago from Portland uh, and therefore knew the, uh, the coast of Oregon very well. He was the managing partner of Skidmore Owings & Merrill in Portland and very well connected with planners, et cetera. And he said, well, if you're hell-bent to build a golf course somewhere on the ocean in either the East Coast or the West Coast, you should go take a look at Oregon. We've got a beautiful, beautiful coastline, which is true. I dubbed it uh, America's Lynx Land. It's 60 miles of uninterrupted, beautiful sand dunes, big enough for probably 50 golf courses. Howard's uh, uh, real contribution
4: was getting the permits. Without Howard, there would be no band and dunes because he was the one that went through all of the permitting, and it was complex. So even though you're in rural Oregon, you're still dealing with all of the state and fe- federal regulators to get a resort permitted, and that required a lot of bureaucratic and politicking, uh, and I did my best to help there, that was all Howard McKee. Without him, there'd be no bandon, right, Josh?
5: I agree with that. Howard was a brilliant guy. The, the old saying that you ask him what time it is and he tells you how to build the watch. I mean you ask him what time it is and he tells you what time means. I mean he, he was he was brilliant and he could convince anyone of anything. And uh, so that was that was a huge part of his contribution. And then I, I would call him kind of the project architect if you will after that i mean he wasn't you know david was a golf course architect and we had building architects but howard kind of um oversaw that and i would have uh weekly meetings with howard um you know for you know the the year and a half before we open weekly meetings on kind of how where's the progress how's everything going and and um Really, really an interesting interesting guy to work with.
2: The pub on property is named after Howard McKee. There's a labyrinth in the trees near one of the foot trails in his honor. But what there isn't at Bandon Dunes, thanks to Howard, is a clubhouse on land best used for golf.
3: I knew there were models from Scotland where it was, uh, the clubhouse was on the, on the ocean and when it wasn't on the ocean. So no model told me what to do. So I went in sort of blank slate. And it was the Kemper people who were the president at the time, not Steve Lesnick, but someone who's no longer with him, who said, you've got to put the clubhouse out here where currently number 16 is, this gorgeous site. And one of one of Howard McKee's great moments was he was listening to all this, and he waited for a suitable time to go by and watched all of us say, yeah, we will put the clubhouse right here in the best place. And Howard said, where are the beer trucks going to go? And there was silence when everyone realized that in order to get to this club, great clubhouse site on the ocean, we needed a road from way back five six hundred yards inland. We'd start this long road with cars to park and beer trucks and UPS delivery, and it went from what a great idea to put the clubhouse out here in this photogenic site to what a stupid idea. We don't want beer trucks on this great site. Let's make it a golf hole. And uh one of the, the most photographed hole at the resort still to this day is that number sixteen a short car four.
2: So there's damn good golf. The clubhouse is inland where it's supposed to be. Word has obviously gotten out and around town that the course is about to open. Meet Mick Peters of Mick's hair surgeons. Peters isn't a great player, but he's avid, and he's been barbering in Bandon for 54 years.
6: And in the shop, we said, oh yeah, they're going to build a world-class golf course you know, in Bandon. Who's going to come to Bandon to play golf? That was, that was the talk right off the bat.
2: Bob Gaspar, now known as Shoe because he looks like the jockey Bill Shoemaker, lived in Bandon and was one of Mick's clients.
6: As the story went on, Shoe came in and he was getting a haircut. He said, I'm going to go out there looking for a caddy master. He said, I'm going to go out and apply for that. I said, cool. So he did. And, of course, as the sh- story went on again, he got it. and He was in my shop again. I've got his hair. And he says, man, that first day is uh, really filling up. I said, wow. I said, is the first tea taken yet? He said, I don't know. But I'm going back out there and I'll check and I'll call you. So he did, and he called me, he said, no, it's open. I said, he said, you want it? I said, yes. And he said, you'll have to have a portion. I said, that's cool, I can do that.
2: Kaiser reflects on the buildup to the first tea time.
6: The entire
3: time leading up to opening day was an e- equally low point of, you know, what are you doing here? Everyone who, everyone who saw it said, what a dumb idea. You no know, golf guys, non-golf guys, bankers, businessmen, family, friends, all meaning well for me, which was pull the plug. Don't do this. It's a terrible idea. So I lived with that for the two and a half uh, years that it took to build it. And I'd say the crescendo was the night before opening day at and Endurance in 1999. Um, I was having dinner with Josh and Steve Lesnick and Howard McKee, and it was raining, and it was supposed to rain the next day. And I knew we had a pretty good tee sheet the next day, but to take the negative side of it, we um, whined about the weather is going to be bad and all of our, all the people who were thinking about coming won't come and we'll have an empty golf course, woe is
2: us. So on Sunday, May 2nd, 1999, the first to the first tee, the Mick Peters foursome.
6: You know, looking back on it, we, it was special at the time but we didn't know exactly how special it was going to be. It was just uh, getting to go play golf, be the first one on a fantastic course. Um, It was just, it was bigger than I expected. I didn't think there would be that many people there watching and I was so nervous, I couldn't hardly put the ball on the tee.
2: Which is where we're going to hit pause on the building of Bandon. Part two will go live next Sunday. We'll pick up where we're leaving off. We'll find out how Mick Peters played, how the course was received, and we'll get a better sense of what Bandon meant to the future of golf in Oregon and in America in general. But before that, a few reflections from our main characters. As Kaiser said at the start, Pine Valley, Dunes Club, and Sand Hills were his inspiration for Bandon Dunes. But they're all private. I asked him if there was ever a chance Bandon wouldn't have been open to the public.
3: I had decided that I was a populist as it related related to golf. I I loved playing Pine Valley. I loved playing Marion. But I appreciated more Pebble Beach and Pinehurst because they were equally great in public. And in in Scotland, where my models were, um, even though most of the courses have a private membership, they allow Manzanella and Mike Guys to go over and be tourists and pay them full of green speed, So that was really my model, the Scottish model.
2: Josh Lesnick on when he realized he was part of something special.
5: And it was, you know, that first day and I'd met David. And when we got to where 16 green and 17 T would become for me, when I saw that, I was like, this is different. Um, but no one really realizes now, as you look back, just how risky this all seemed how crazy it all seemed it was so unconventional you know to stress what david was saying golf courses were being built close to people you know close to cities people didn't necessarily care about the site for golf it could have mud and clay and rock under the soil but if it were close to people and you could put houses around it that's the kind of golf courses people were building in the 90s 80s 90s in, in america this was close to nobody. This is going back to the golden age when you'd look for the best site for golf and no, you know, no bank would finance it. No no everybody thought it was crazy. Mike's friends thought it was crazy. Mike thought it was crazy. I don't
4: think Bandon Dunes is near as unique as you guys think it is. Abandoned Dunes, if it were in the British Isles, it would be one of dozens of really good links courses, but it would not be unique. It's only unique here, where there is nothing else like it.
1: Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired.
2: Are you looking for good value on great golf apparel? As a listener to this podcast, my friends John Ashworth and Jeff Cunningham at Link Soul in Oceanside, California are offering you a 25% discount on all future orders of what I wear all day, every day, on and off the course. Whenever you go to linksoul.com, just use promo code MATTYG25. M-A-T-T-Y-G-25. Thank you for listening to The Fire Pit. It's produced by Alex Upegi. It's edited by Rex Lint. The theme song is by Joe Horowitz. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and we might track you down and send you one of our new Imperial Ropats. Got a question, comment, or a story for us to track down? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Janella or on Instagram at Matt underscore Janella. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Fire Pit on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to a story like this one. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is where we post portions of our podcast and add some visual surprises.
3: Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum Card right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: This is Malcolm
4: Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it.